Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. And in this podcast, I interview leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. This week, I'm interviewing Neil Henderson, the CEO of Safeline, a charity that provides both support for sexual abuse victims as well as education to prevent it. Formerly on the board at Royal Mail, Neil talks candidly about the challenges of communicating change and taking responsibility to ensure everyone is aligned. Neil argues that running a charity is much like running a commercial organisation. You need to focus on key strategic imperatives, the numbers need to stack up, and it's all about the people. He makes it all sound so easy. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Hi Neil, thank you for joining me today. Um, would you like to explain who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name's Neil Henderson and I'm CEO of Safeline, where, which is a specialist sexual abuse and rape charity. Uh, okay. okay, and what are your experiences of leading through uncertainty? Well, I, all my career I've managed through uncertainty. Um, I spent 27 years at Royal Mail, um, which, is, uh, which was a difficult environment in the sense that uh, the whole media of mail was under challenge, so we were constantly reviewing strategies and how we dealt with it. Um, so I've been used to it in all walks of life. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an industry that's had massive change, hasn't huge it? Huge amount of change, yeah. yeah. And it's responded quite well to it in many ways. Um, grossly underinvested in uh, for many, many years, low productivity. So there was a lot of challenges to that, and with the, the emergence of digital technologies as well, mail became a a medium that was, you know, exceptionally under risk. So we had to change the whole model from, you know, from letters to a certain extent to more parcels, which was where where the growing market was. So, mm-hmm. um, and how did the employees deal with that change? Badly. <laughs> but primarily, I think my my, uh, my my view was that was a leadership issue in itself that we didn't you know, create the, the need for change much more clearly amongst the workforce. We didn't explain it and we, we'll, we let the, the unions kind of fulfil that role. We should have been much more pro, proactive talking to the people and mm. explaining the need for change and engaging them in the change. And in many instances where I was involved, working with some great people, we were able to do that. And there were some fantastic examples of where we were able to deliver some magnificent results. Um, but across an organisation with 210,000 employees, it's, it's quite a difficult challenge. And yeah. As I say, the barrier was always kind of management and lower and middle management where they were starved of information. So there was lots of lessons that I learned and mm-hmm. I've tried to use in subsequent roles. What are some of those key lessons that you learned? Um, well, the, the, the key one for me is taking responsibility. Um, whenever I'm in a situation where I need to manage change, it is about responsibility and taking ownership of it. Um, so I try and lead from the front, I'm visible, we try and paint the picture. I always worked, I worked with a guy called Adam Crozier, who's a, a fantastically gifted individual who worked at Saatchi and ITN. And, um, he, I always remember one of the key things he told me, and that was explain the why. And you always need to explain why change is needed. Mm. Um, and that's something that, I've, that stuck with me really for all my career, whenever I'm involved in change. And that's often what results from periods of uncertainty, it requires a level of change. 
always remember explain why you need to do that and just be honest and be transparent and I've always tried to apply that and and I think it works. Uh, and do you think that minimises the uncertainty for people if they understand the No, why? I don't think it minimises, but it actually puts it in perspective as to yeah. why it's needed. And it's no different from myself. If I know why I need to do something and why there is a need to change, then I'm much more liable to follow it. What I don't like is being told, uh, this is what's going to happen and I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when we had to change the pension rules at Royal Mail, that was incredibly difficult because on a business scale, people might listen to some business arguments, but when it starts to affect you and affect your pocket, that was really, really difficult. So, mm-hmm. so that thing's really struck with me, just explaining to people why change is so important and taking the time to explain it and reinforcing it. And if you need to go back and talk about it, providing the evidence, giving them options, engaging, all that sort of stuff. But that, that's probably the biggest lesson I've ever learned in terms mm-hmm. of managing. It's explaining to people why change is necessary. And it's about creating a two-way dialogue as well, isn't I mean, it? So it's, it's not just a, a top-down, here's a dump of information that we're giving to you and then hope that it's still okay. No, I mean, my, my ethos, well, my natural inclination in terms of leadership is, is about, you know, it's all about people. Um, that's my passion, it's working with people. I'm an executive coach, so I believe in getting the best from people. Um, I'm a collaborator. Um, and I just think you get much more out of people if everybody's engaged and can input to it and they own it. It's, it's a much more lasting change. Mm. Um, there, there may be some instances where you do need to do a top down, you know, maybe in a, a moment of crisis, but in terms of getting a sustainable organisation and a sustainable business, you know. Um, forcing change of people has never ever worked for me. You know, I've seen lots of evidence where it's just failed miserably. So my natural inclination's always been to take the time to explain it, to engage, involve, um, and touch with a lot of the change I've been involved with has been effective in, in doing that mm-hmm. sort of a approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Okay. And you st- so you started your career in Royal Mail, yep. and now you're at Safeline. That seems like a, a big shift. Tell me about what made you make the change. Um, well, it's not really a big shift. I mean, I always said to myself I would leave Royal Mail at the age of 50. I mean, I'd been pretty successful. I got to board level. Um, and I'm quite an idealist, you know. Um, I, I'll find a reason why mail's important. You know, I'll sell it and everything else. But I always felt there was something um, more that I wanted to do that, that I cared about and inspired me. And giving something back to people was always something that's been important to me. I mean, I, I had a lot of really good skills at Royal Mail, and I used those skills to put pounds on the bottom line of Royal Mail. What I wanted to do was to use those skills to, to change people's lives. So. I always had a plan that at the age of 50 I would leave and I started my own business and that was always part of the plan as well but it was always about generating resources to enable me to um, get involved with the third sector, learn about the third sector, then apply my skills in the third sector Uh, and I have to say if ever a sector needed the application of commercial skills it's the third sector Mm. so um, it is no different from any organisation I've ever worked in. Uh, particularly at Safeline. Safeline, you need to know 
what it is you delude, why you exist and what you're trying to achieve. You need to recruit great people, you need to motivate people, you need to have succession plans, you need to market yourself, you need to deliver great services, you need to measure their impact, you need to manage your money, you need to generate money. It's no different. It's no different. And, um, so tell us, tell us about Safeline. What, what does Safeline do? Well, well Safeline, as I say, is a specialist sexual abuse charity. It was developed or uh, created 24 years ago by survivors of abuse. And initially what it did was it supported people who had been sexually abused. Um, the impact of sexual abuse is long-lasting and devastating and there was no real specialist support for individuals at the time. So that's how Safeline started. Today it's a very different organisation because we really do two things. Not only do we continue to support survivors of abuse and help them cope and recover, but more importantly or equally uh, as important, we try and prevent abuse from happening in the first place. Because in an ideal world it just wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. So over the last five, six years we've developed prevention services so we do a lot of work in schools and in the community to try and protect people from being abused. So, And it's one of the rare charities that does both. You get some charities that might focus on prevention, some on support, we do both. So, And it's the most magnificent organisation. Not, not because I lead it, but the people involved in it are just unbelievable. Um, we've got the most magnificent staff team full of professionals, highly ethical individuals that put clients first. We run the service with volunteers, so the people that do the counselling are all volunteers. We've got over 60 volunteers, fully trained counsellors, right. who give off their time, and they're the most magnificent people. And when you see people coming into Safeline who have just been... Well, I, I, I'm incapable of, of explaining what it must feel like, but when you see them at the end of their counselling or whatever support we give them, being able to face life in a much more positive way. It's just the most uplifting and rewarding thing I've ever been involved with. As I say, I've loved my time at Royal Mail and I was proud of what I achieved, but this is, I've never been so happy in my work, I have to say. Mm. Uh, and I'm not involved in the frontline clients. My, my role is to promote the charity. My role is to generate funds so we can grow and help more people mm. um, and provide the tools that our staff and volunteers need to help greater numbers of people affected by abuse. I mean, if I give you a flavour, it's estimated that one in five women and one in six men have been sexually abused. Mm, they're astonishing figures, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, that equates to eight million women and six million men. In the UK, 14 right? million people. Mm. That excludes families that are affected by it. Now, I'm a father and I know if my daughter had been sexually abused, how it would affect me, it would destroy mm. me. Mm. And that's the thing that really drives me. It's the most prevalent thing in society. And, you know, there's a lot of charities doing magnificent work, but this is just so common in every community. Even mm. in sunny Warwickshire, where we're sitting just now, you know, child sexual exploitation last year grew by 45%. Mm, that's just it's unbelievable. So people think it doesn't happen here, it only happens to deprived. Uh, communities. It's not what happens to everybody. Mm. You know, Friday I left and there was a five-year-old sitting in that room about to be counselled through an art therapist. It's just, on the helpline last week there was a 91-year-old man for the first time spoke about his abuse. He'd been abused at the age of seven. Mm. Over 80 years he's lived with abuse. Mm. Um, so, as I say, it's the most rewarding role I've ever done. And, and when I took over, 
we, we talk about managing through uncertainty. This was an organisation that was really in uncertain times mm -hmm. for a whole host of reasons. Um, if you take the environment in which we operated in, Safeline is a very small charity at the time, there's about a quarter of a million pounds worth of income, but about 95% of that came from statutory funding from the government. Right. At a period during austerity, um, so government cuts were rife, so the fear of having your money cut was there every day of the week. Yeah. And the it's something many charities have had to face. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. And that's, and it's how you respond to that that mm. will define certain charities. Mm. But, and how and, did you respond to that? Well, well, as I say, not only did you have that, you had the public were given 20% less uh, donations to charity. It, 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 it's, it's a tough time. Costs were increasing. Um, sexual abuse is a taboo subject, so very few people support it. Um, you see people out there with cans for cancers, and it's, it's absolutely wonderful. But you never see many people running the London Marathon with a sexual abuse T-shirt on the back or having prosecco mornings. So it, 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 it's one of the most challenging funding environments. Mm. And then if you add to that things like kids come here just happen, so the perception of charities. How we cope with it was quite easy. I think you can do a number of things. You can either you know, keep bleating about trying to get more money from, from the government. Or there's a different approach where, and this is the approach that we took, we decided to invest in a fundraiser. We never had a fundraiser. And, you know, I felt investing in a fundraiser was quite a low-risk strategy because you pay a salary um, and the anticipation is that, you know, the return on investment will at least cover that salary. Mm -hmm. and I, had had experience when I left Royal working with organisations like Save the Children, Bernardo's, uh, Cystic Fibrosis, and I saw what could be done if you got the right person in place. So we decided to invest in a full-time fundraiser, or initially it was a three-day-a-week fundraiser, highly experienced individual. Um, I've got a background of not only operations, but I led sales and marketing at Royal Mail. Um, and so together, with the input of all of the team, we started to work hard at generating bids um, to different types of funders. We still wanted to get as much money from the government as we could because we needed it, but there's a whole host of trust funds out there that we had never ever applied to. So between myself and the fundraiser and the team, because that's again what defines SafeLine. One of the things I'm so proud about is the way the team works. Mm. We cannot put a bid together an effective bid if we don't understand what the need is. We cannot put a bid together if we don't know what the solution might be. And what happened very quickly, hopefully through some of the collaborative behaviours that I've tried to encourage, was that we were putting bids together that were just of an exceptional quality. Um, we also were very smart that we would only target trusts where we knew there was a high likelihood of them supporting a charity like mm -hmm. SafeLine. So it wasn't, let's flood the place with lots of bids and hopefully one or two will stick. It was very yeah. targeted. It was very, they support organisations like SafeLine. Let's use the team to build a compelling bid. Let's be very clear on what we'll deliver and how we'll measure that. You know, th those are all important issues. You know, need demonstrating, need, doesn't need to exist. Demonstrating a solution that we know will work 
giving confidence to people that will measure outcomes and will demonstrate outcomes because that's what they want to see their money making a difference mm -hmm. and, and that's what we did and we targeted trust funds and for a year and a half well within about a, sorry within about 12 months we took the income from about a quarter of a million to 450k wow. and we were winning 50% of bids, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. uh, the average in a charitable, well, never mind even a charity, in a commercial organisation, mm -hmm. is 10% of bids you're mm -hmm. successful in. You know, we, we were targeting and winning up to 50%. And it was magnificent. And what that enabled us to do was simply help more people. Mm -hmm. um, because that was one of the things that we did when we took over. We, we just felt we needed to say why did we exist and what were we trying to do and it was clear that what we wanted to do with the kind of figures that I've spoken about was simply help more people and that's why we needed more income to do that and mm. that's what we did. And what do you need the income for if your volunteer councillors are volunteers what do you need the income for? Well there's the still costs associated with volunteers so mm. for example we'll pay for travel and, and parking and stuff like that but again, one of the things that I'm really proud of the team and proud about Safeline is we're a hugely ethical organisation. Mm. So one of the things we insist on is we pay for something that we call clinical supervision. Um, so we, every councillor that we work with gets supervision every month. Because if you can imagine, you're working with some of the most damaged individuals, some of the things that they're hearing are traumatic and cause personal distress. So we need to make sure that the well-being of our people are looked after. So, you know, there's a big cost associated with making sure that they get the right supervision support. So that's part of it. But the other thing is, you know, we need to pay, you know, we, we needed, we do have salary costs mm -hmm. because we have people that do assessments of clients. As soon as a client comes to Safeline is referred to us, we assess on needs. And we do that brilliantly. You know, we're not like a lot of charities where, you know, you just you're given a counsellor. We know that effective counselling is based on a number of things, and one of the most important things is the right fit between a counsellor and a client, yeah. matching needs, matching different skills, matching personalities. So we invest a lot of time in that. So we have to pay for for salaries. We're no different from anybody else. Mm. We've, we've not got a lot of. We don't hold stocks, but it's. It's, it's running a building. We had a computer system that was, you know, with a server that wasn't being backed up. We were in danger of losing um, client data. We had computers with different forms of software on it. None of them could speak to each other. So we needed the money to invest in the infrastructure to create an infrastructure that could support a lot, lot more clients. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that was a mixture of staff costs. It was a mixture of, you know, infrastructure costs. It was a mixture of decorating the building to make it a much more more conducive to counselling. So, um, but the bottom line is, you know, we wanted to help more clients, mm -hmm. and the more clients we have, the more counsellors we need. You know, we went from at the time about thirty counsellors. You know, as I say, we're now averaging about sixty, mm -hmm. uh, and every time you take on new counsellors, there's training requirements. Yeah. There's um, you've got to find them. <laughs> oh, you've got to find them, all of these things. So, so as I say, that, that's what we did and we grew and it was, it was magnificent because we went from helping something like about 1,500 clients a year to about 4,000. 4, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so we, we continued 
doing that and recently we've invested in a second full-time fundraiser um, because we have lots of untapped opportunities so we're doing great things with the government securing funding it's very risky um, we grew a share of trust funds um, but again they tend to be 12 months you know so um, but there was a whole host of untapped um, opportunities in terms of income you know nobody gave individually communities didn't fundraise for us because the subject was tough um, so we're investing now trying to diversify our income because that risk to government funding is still there mm. so a key objective we've got is how do we grow our income but how do we also diversify it away from the more risky incomes like home office and government um, and, and we're doing that successfully this year we anticipate that statutory funding back in 2015 was 95%, this year it'll be about 57%, mm. and that's a massive movement. Mm. And we're seeing growth in other income streams where we're selling services, um, our training services to people, we, we've got a counselling service running in a school, they pay us to do their counselling, which is fantastic, because most schools have a, a vanilla-flavoured counsellor that's one person that does far too many clients every day and they can't match their needs, mm. whereas we're able to offer different counsellors with different skills that is much more effective. So our, our, our earned income is growing by selling some services. We're starting to grow our community and individual fundraising. Mm. We've invested heavily in raising awareness and more people are finding us and want to support us. Uh, so, as I say, this year we will support about 10,000 people. It's a magnificent That's job. Huge, yeah. And that came about because, going back to money, we invested in a, a new helpline. And um, you talk of there's, there's opportunities arrive in life. Um, and we wanted to help more people. Safeline kind of only supported people from a face to face perspective. So, if you were ready to do face to face counselling, that was wonderful. There's a lot of people who are either disabled, can't leave home, who can never access support. Or don't want to. Or don't want to. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to invest in a new helpline and introduce digital services like email, uh, text and instant messaging so that we could extend our reach to so many more people. And I remember we were funded by the government uh, home Office, one of the first for supporting male survivors of rape, which is relatively new. And the government had money and they wanted to invest in a helpline and there wasn't a specialist charity big enough to do it. And I remember we got an invite down to the Home Office and we're sitting, sorry, the Ministry of Justice, we're sitting in the Ministry of Justice and I remember the, the Minister said, look, is there nobody can do a helpline. And because we'd just invested in new telephony system, new computer system, and invested in a helpline manager, I, you know, put my hand up and said, we'll have a go. Mm -hmm. And we put a business case together in six weeks and had it up and running within six weeks. Wow. And it worked. Now, I ran the transformation project at Royal Mail. I was deputy CEO of Bernardo's, who were, weren't open to change. And one of the proudest things that I regard about Safeline is the capacity to embrace change in Safeline has just been magnificent. Yeah, it's I mean, I'm hearing huge amounts of change and diversifying, you know, income streams, but also services. You know, I'm hearing huge amounts of 
adaptability, flexibility, oh, agility, all the things all that actually corporate teams are, are needing to have absolutely. too. What would, you, what would your advice be to people who are listening on how to be more flexible, more adaptable and more agile? Because that, those are things that the corporations like Royal Mail talk about wanting and yet what I'm hearing is in the third sector you're, you're role modelling that. So what would your advice be to people? Um, well, it, it's, it, I, I think it, it all stems, I think, from leadership. You know, we're here talking about leadership. There's no doubt it's about a culture you create. Mm. Now, I could argue that I've been very fortunate. You know, I was at Bernardo's and, you know, there was a resistance there, uh, bred out of, I, I don't know, trust maybe. Um, what I've got here is a special team of people who, again, if you explain why the change is necessary, if you can explain why it will benefit the clients we support and the clients we protect, you know, the, that explanation and understanding drives a level of flexibility and adaptability that that will stand you in fantastic stead. And, that, and that's what I've been like. For me, it all comes back to people and the people mm. that you employ. It's about their commitment. It's about their attitudes. It's about their capability. Not only the people in Safeline, you know, they think it's a third sector and little organisation. They're exceptional people. Mm. They're exceptional people, all with the right attitude. And that's one of the things that we've really worked hard at at Safeline is those behaviours... And they know when to stop. They know when they've had enough, you know, because we're going to do a year where we consolidate because <coughs> last year we invested in new premises like this. We're investing in new premises in Stratford. And when you invest in those changes, you need to just make sure the changes work, you embed them, mm -hmm. and, and that's what we're doing. So we know when to consolidate and then we know when we can take the next step. We've had a few years where we've grown massively and... It, for me, it is about leadership, and it's about surrounding you with the right people with the right attitude, and we've worked hard at that. We've gone from eight staff back in 2015, we've now got 24. Yeah. That's as big an increase in employment in most organisations in Warwickshire that have witnessed, apart from maybe GLR. Mm -hmm. The ethics and the values of Safeland, we've worked really hard to make sure that during that period of growth with new people, it's never ever been diluted. Yeah. We recruit people with the right, you know, I talk about right skills, right attitudes. And, and that's what it's been about. We're very careful on how we recruit. We won't just put bombs in seats. We we make sure we get the right people, the right fit. Mm. And, and that really protects that. So when you are doing change, there's a real desire for change, but they, they do change in a way that just won't undermine the values of the organisation. Mm. So, you know, what's been wonderful for me is to listen to our volunteers who have witnessed Safeline grow from a really small organisation. This year we'll hopefully support about 15,000. I mean, that's phenomenal. Is, yeah. From two years ago, 1,500 to 15,000. It's just... And what the proudest thing I get is when volunteers embrace the change and celebrate the change. They, they don't feel that the client has been affected in one way. That way, the way we treat clients and look after them and put them first has never been diluted, which is the biggest testament, I yeah. think. Yeah. You know, you can grow big and your service goes and your standards go and you get rogue employees that then spread a 
kind of poison amongst people and it becomes difficult. You know, we've made really tough decisions. We've let people go because they just weren't right for the organisation. Mm -hmm. So when if you've got the right people with the right behaviours and the right attitudes, that flexibility and adaptability can be there. There's no doubt being a bit smaller helps, mm -hmm. you know. You know, I mean if we were 120 it might be slightly difficult. But even there, each of the departments, every one of them now, they're constantly pushing the barriers. Mm -hmm. They're constantly looking for ways to improve the support we give to clients, how we can do it more cost effectively, how we can do it, how we can reach even more people that aren't currently supported. And when that culture's ingrained and as long as it's supported, now, that's one of the lessons I've learned about one of the biggest leadership behaviours I think is really important is that level of consistency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because if, if, when you develop a style and an approach, it's really important that people trust that that's the approach that we want and it's consistent. And you need to be careful not to stray away from that because it can frighten people, they'll frighten people off. And, and there's a balance there, I guess, isn't there, between the diversifying that you've done and the, and the massive growth that you've had to also being clear about what it is that you stand for and, and having that consistency. Well, not really, because that's what drives us. Mm -hmm. So we know what SafeLine is. We know we're client-focused. We know we're ethical. We know all of those things, and we will do nothing that affects that in any way. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't introduce a change that didn't enhance that or take it forward or didn't meet to, to what we needed. So, in many so it's ways, back to your why again, isn't it? It's, it's being really clear about what you stand absolutely, for. Absolutely. And, and that was one of the first things we ever did when I took over. I remember, we've got, we call it the Attic Cross in one of the offices. And I remember that was the first thing we did. We just sat on the flip chart. We just said, what does SafeLine stand for? What, what are the services we provide? What are we trying to achieve? Because we'd lost our way, we never knew. And, and we'd start to chase money for the wrong reasons. And we, we really just brought it back to what is it we're trying to achieve? You know, we're a specialist charity, so we deal with people who have been sexually abused. We don't go into domestic abuse, we don't do anything else, we don't do general mental health. Because I've seen that happen. Mm. People chase money and they become generalists. Mm. You become good at nothing. We have got 13, 14 million people that have been sexually abused. I've not got enough resource to go around, so we'll never run out of clients. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's more people being abused. So we were very clear we're specialists. Mm. We were very clear in our ethics. We were very clear in what we wanted the services to be like. We were very clear that we wanted to help more people. And that gave a role, that defined everybody's role. So fundraising, in my role, was about raising awareness. How do we get people that need help to find us? Because mm -hmm. we behaved like a victim. We, mm -hmm. we hid away. We wanted to show up and say, we're here. Come, come and get support. We also wanted to show up to people that might support us, for God's sake, start supporting something like this. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear from a fundraising point of view that we needed more money, but we also knew we needed to diversify. We knew we needed capacity within our services so we could help more people. So we needed to recruit more counsellors, we needed to do more training, we needed to invest in more of the core staff team to support those counsellors. Every one of those counsellors gets clinical supervision and management supervision. Um, we wanted to help more children in school so we needed to invest in a prevention project. So it, 
being really clear on what you're trying to, you know, your strategy, you know, provides direction, motivation, and alignment. I mean, it's, you know, it, and that, that going back to those basics and making sure that everybody bought into that, that, that's, that was fundamental. So everybody knows what we stand for. And if I step out of line, or if I want to do something, you know, where I see an opportunity, if it dilutes those values in any way, God, they'll pull me up. And that, that's... That's fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. And that's one of the things I've got, you know, that I've got a team who will hold me to account. Right. And they feel safe enough to do it. Right. Because, you know, obviously the charity sector has been under a lot of flack recently about being yeah, ethical. And, and, you know, my experience of, of charities is that they're full of very, very passionate people. And sometimes they get over-passionate and therefore their own leadership within the organisation is not is not as solid. Yeah, and, uh, 100%. You know, and I think... Some charities get greedy, and I think some of the things they do are just wrong. Um, but you know, so it's about balancing having a passion for what you're trying to achieve, but also continuing to demonstrate responsible and ethical leadership, yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah, I would walk away if, if ever I felt that we were starting to do things that were unsafe or not full of integrity. I think safely would walk away. But what we've got here is a team that feels confident and safe to hold each other to account um, you know and that's what I love you know sometimes I feel a bit um, you know when I'm told no that's wrong Neil but, <laughs> but but that's how I like to operate you know I know I've not got all the answers I've never had all the answers and again going back to my coaching I, I get such sheer pleasure when people feel engaged enough to improve services or hold me to account and they feel safe enough to be able to do it as well. Yeah. That's what creates a safe organisation. Yeah. You know, if you think about what we do, we're working with people who have been abused primarily because of exercising their power and control. We need to role model the behaviours we want, yeah. probably more than anybody. And so that means about being open, honest, transparent, ethical and it as I say it's the most joyous environment I've ever worked in because I've got people who feel confident enough and I take a lot of pride in that and I get quite emotional when I speak about it I think when you see somebody that feels confident enough to to challenge and say no but in a constructive way and to hold me to account that feels safe you know you've created the environment yeah, that to yeah. One final question for you, Neil. If you were to go back into Royal Mail now, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Well, I've always known this. I've always known that the best way to get, you know, great things out of people is to treat them with respect, to be honest and open. Um, I don't think I would go back into an organisation like that. Because I used one of the reasons I left. I used to call it the corporate tournament. There's just a lot of people there who, if only they could change their behaviours and turn it into a much more kind of collaborative environment, they would they would excel and enjoy their work much more. So I've always known because even at Royal Mail, whether it was running my own region or my own area, the kind of principles I believe that gets the best of people I always exercised and. 
I'm not surprised that we used to get fantastic results. The, the issue you've got is how do you spread that culture across an organisation, and that can only really come from the top. Mm. So, you know, the frustrations I had was watching some people, um, you know, lead in a way that was wholly unacceptable to me, get wonderful short-term results but couldn't sustain it. When they had left that position, the place would just crumbled or they would have industrial action or whatever. So I, I suppose I've always believed in those principles and what I've tried to do is take those principles that I had in Royal Mail or when I was captain of the golf club or I'm chair of governors at a school, that whole approach to being honest, open, transparent, engaged, you know, I've kind of brought that into Safeline and what I've had is a wonderful bunch of people who have been prepared to embrace that and who that's the preferred leadership style they want. I mean the issue for me is how do we engender that and sell that to more people so that more people embrace it because it just makes every aspect of work much more enjoyable. Well and I think you're role modelling that in Safeline aren't you from what I'm hearing. You've grown the organisation, you've got an environment where people are open and transparent and will challenge you so um, you know great job I think the fact that you're doing that you are role modelling it and I think that's all we can continue to do is to keep role modelling the leadership skills that, that we think are needed. Well, that, that's kind of what you say, you know, as I say, I've, I've had a team that have been receptive to them. And, um, but, you know, I've never been backward at, you know, making changes to create that environment. I think, you know, I think yeah, creating an environment that's wonderful, but as I've said to you, even at Safeline, we've had to make some difficult people decisions mm -hmm. to ensure that that way of working and that DNA, as it were, isn't diluted in any way and the trustees have been always supportive of that as well so it is about being clear on what you think works and doing everything you can to support it and making sure that if there's people that are trying to undermine it or derail it that you know you have difficult conversations and we've had to do that with you know a few people at Safeline you know but the vast majority of people at Safeline this is the way they want to work it's what we should be doing for our clients um, and touch with let's hope it'll be more successful going forward because as I say despite the fact that you know we've grown the number of clients from as I say 1500 hopefully to about 15,000 this year it's the tip of the iceberg and we need lots more resources to be able to help a lot more people um, so you know and people desperately need it so um, well, look, thank you, Neil. It's been fascinating to talk to you today. Thank you. I love the idea that Neil's employees challenge him. It takes humility for a leader to create an environment that encourages challenge and a willingness to pay attention when they do. Neil clearly demonstrates all of that. Safeline has gone from strength to strength under his leadership. And with one in five women and one in six men affected by sexual abuse, this is important work. I was moved by Neil's passion for Safeline and his commitment to the services they provide, but in a way you'd expect that. Above all, I was moved by the way he met me as a fellow human being and his commitment to making a difference through responsible and ethical leadership. I think business could benefit from more humility and humanity, don't you? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty. Mm -hmm.